Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. In a moment, I'll have a discussion about affordable housing with the executive director of the Coalition on Homelessness and Housing in Ohio. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, Tracy Townsend looks at a number of issues, including the January 6th hearings in Washington, the increase in violence this summer in the short north, and she'll talk with the Columbus Schools Superintendent about the coming year. And I'll wrap up the hour talking about distracted driving with someone from the Governor's Highway Safety Association. First up on Columbus Perspective on the phone with me, Amy Regal, she is the executive director of the Coalition on Homelessness and Housing in Ohio. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. Tell us what the coalition is. The Coalition on Homelessness and Housing in Ohio, otherwise known as COHIO, is a group of advocates that come together to work towards improving um, affordable housing opportunities and reducing homelessness across the state of Ohio. We provide advocacy work at the state and federal level and also help to facilitate programs in the housing space across the state. And you recently became executive director, replacing the retiring longtime director, Bill Faith. That is correct, yes, on June 1st. Tell us your background as far as uh, getting into this position. I have worked in the housing space for over... 17 years. I worked in local government for 10 years, um, working in the city of Dayton, Ohio, working on different types of housing and homelessness activities. During my tenure at the city of Dayton is, was during the housing recession in 2009-2010. And so that was really when I became very interested, not just in the daily activities, the cities were doing it to promote housing and, to, and homelessness, but about the policies that were being created that were impacting housing and homelessness. I then somewhat took a little twist in my career, and I went to work for CareSource, the managed care organization that operates here in the state of Ohio. They were starting a program called Life Services, and they really wanted to dig in deep and focus on the social determinants of health. And they were looking for experts in the field to come into the organization and to help them build that program. So I joined CareSource and worked there for over six years. And during that time, I started their program focusing on housing across the country and how, especially for individuals who are on Medicaid, how housing directly impacts their health outcomes, but also their just overall well-being and satisfaction in life. So that was a great opportunity, not, not just to go deeper in the state of Ohio to see how housing intersects with other important topics, but then to learn what other states were doing and how they were approaching the same topic and the same issues that are very prevalent and, and similar across the country. And the truth be told, what I found is Ohio does this work really, really well. And there's a lot of best practices and great work that is happening right here in the state. So when the opportunity presented itself to replace Bill, although no one will ever replace Bill Faith, um, but to assume this role as executive director, I thought it was a great opportunity to come back to my home state and to really focus in on what we can do to further policy and also um, promote the best programs possible 
so that the citizens of the state of Ohio can have housing opportunities and are less likely to find themselves in the position of homelessness. That's great. Talking with Amy Regal, Executive Director of COHIO, the Coalition on Homelessness and Housing in Ohio. You're out with your out-of-reach report, which looks at the affordability of renting in Ohio. Yes. This is an annual report that we put out in conjunction with the National Low-Income Housing Coalition. And every year we look at what is that wage that a person has to earn in order to afford a, a modest two-bedroom apartment across the state. When you look at your numbers, they're so eye-opening because I like the way you broke it down to the 10 occupations where the most Ohioans work and whether they can afford it or not. Yes. Oftentimes, we'll talk about the fact that there's nowhere in the state of Ohio that a person who's earning minimum wage and working full-time can afford a two-bedroom apartment. But the pushback on that statement might be, well, but do most people earn minimum wage? And aren't people, especially now as you see many signs in your community of organizations paying, you know, $14, $15 an hour, how many people are actually earning minimum wage? So what we look at is those 10 most common occupations across the state, how much are they paying on average? And could you work those jobs full time and be able to afford a modest two-bedroom apartment. And what we find is six out of the ten you cannot afford a two-bedroom apartment. For two of them, you would just be squeaking by and things would probably be really tight. They're just earning over the $17.05 wage the renter has to earn to be able to afford that two-bedroom apartment. There are only two only two of those most common positions where you are comfortably able to earn that wage and afford a two-bedroom apartment. And so what that shows us is that for the majority of working Ohioans across the state, housing is really out of reach, and they're spending a lopsided amount of their income each month on housing, which takes away from their ability to spend those dollars on other things. And these occupations, you know, we're talking about a nurse, a retail salesperson, fast food worker, cashier, customer service rep, stock order filer, laborer, freight mover, home health aide, general operations manager, and office clerk. When you add all those up, it's about a million people in Ohio, and only the nurse and the operation, general operations manager, are making money that puts them well above what they need to rent a two-bedroom apartment. That is correct. And... There are many other important service individuals and uh, laborers across the state who we know are essential to our everyday lives. The individual who waits on you in the store as you're buying your kids' school supplies right now, or perhaps the waitress waiting on you at the local restaurant. These are all service employees that we that we need and that in many cases we've found just how essential they are um, to our well-being and the wages that they're earning and with the skyrocketing rental rates, they're just not matching up these days. And you're saying uh, in your report that you need about 17 bucks an hour to afford a two-bedroom apartment in Ohio and 
You know, this comes on the heels of many states and cities pushing for a $15 minimum wage. And that must really be disheartening for you that, that we finally started to get a push for higher wages. But now it comes at a time when now it's not enough. That is correct. And when we look at these numbers, that is based upon if a person were able to afford what's called fair market rent. That's the rent level that is calculated by the federal government as kind of a, I would say, lower end average of what rental units are going for in your community. So it really is if you can find that unique unit that is in the area that you want and that is available and that is it at that fair market rent level. But if you look around our communities right now, you would be very hard pressed to find a unit at that rental um, amount. Most of the units are going for more than that. And what we're seeing is that in a recent report, in the last year, just in the last year, for over 100,000 Ohioans, their rent went up by over $250 a month. Wow. So that, that is just going up and up and up, but our wages aren't necessarily, or in most cases, aren't rising at that same rate. So yes, you do have to earn $17.05, but... Um, in most cases, you would need to earn even more than that to be able to afford that apartment. So although the conversations are promising and we are happy to hear the conversations of increasing that minimum wage and the minimum wage increases that Ohio has provided over the years, Ohio is now $2 more an hour than the federal level. Uh, Those are good steps in the right direction but the cost of these essential services in our life, a place to live is an essential need within our everyday lives. That cost is just rising much faster, and we need to think of ways that we can try to balance these costs and what we're earning in our paycheck. Talking with Amy Regal, Executive Director of the Coalition on Homelessness and Housing in Ohio. I know somebody up in my old stomping grounds in Huron County, which is up between Mansfield and Sandusky, who's on a fixed income, retired, his rent went from 465 to 700 And that still might sound like a bargain to some people around here, but that's a rural area where wages are nowhere near what they are around here. It's just not sustainable. No, and that's a common story. We're hearing that from all kinds of people. We're hearing it from people who are entering homeless shelters. We're hearing it from seniors who are on fixed income. We're also hearing it from individuals who are who are working in some of our top employers who have, you know, higher level positions, but who are renters um, and perhaps are, you know, saving up, trying to become a homeowner, and they're finding themselves in the position of being forced to leave their unit because they can't afford it anymore. And so this is a very common story that we're hearing and one that I just don't know if it's sustainable for us to keep seeing this happen to our communities. Now, the state is still awash in pandemic relief money, right? They do still have a significant portion of the $5.6 billion that were received 
as part of the ARPA or the American Recovery Plan Act. And that money is available. The trick of, or I don't want to say the trick, but the, the effort that has to be put into spending these dollars is this is one-time money that was received from the federal government to the states. And so the states don't really want to set up new programs or to set up um, things that have to be maintained or funded ongoing. They're really looking for one-time expenditures that can be placed out into the communities and that will help the community but will not require being funded over and over and over again. We think that housing is the perfect answer to that one-time funding opportunity. Once we build these houses, which a supply of more, especially affordable homes across the state, will help address these rising rents. If we were able to build these houses, we would have more supply. There would be more ample opportunities for individuals to find a unit that they can afford. And what we believe is that that wage that a person needs to earn would either stabilize or maybe even possibly go down a little bit um, and make and make housing more affordable. Well, if building new housing, affordable housing, is part of the answer, is this an unfortunate time to do it, though? Because, you know, we hear about materials being more expensive, supply problems, and that kind of thing. Yes, that is true. We are hearing that the cost of supplies and materials are going up, and that's true for, you know, many items. The price of gas is definitely going up, yet many of us continue to drive, and many of us have to continue to drive um, so we can get to our jobs or get our kids to school or whatever it is. We can't take this time and hesitate in the development of new housing. Housing does take, usually in the state of Ohio, anywhere between 12 months to 24 months in order to build. We can't delay. There's not a, a a situation where these rental increases don't continue to skyrocket. We have to act now. I I agree. It's not the perfect time. It would be great to wait for those lumber prices to go down, to wait to get some more skilled labor individuals uh, trained and out into the field. But if we wait for those things, it will be too late. We have to act now and take this opportunity. So you're calling for $308 million to be used toward this. Are you getting uh, pushback or support? What's going on with that? We are not receiving pushback. Uh, We are hearing support. We understand that, especially during the pandemic, it brought a spotlight to many different gaps and needs across the state of Ohio. So we in no way, shape, or form are saying housing is the only need in the state of Ohio. We understand that there are other things that the ARPA dollars could be used for. However, we know that housing is the foundation to build upon so that more workers can get into the workforce, so that we can reduce the pressure on our hospitals because people will be healthier and be able to take a more active care of their overall well-being. We know kids do better in school when they have a stable house to go to. So we are not receiving pushback. I think 
timing. And we believe that the time is now and that this is the opportunity we have to go ahead and make this investment so we can be prepared for what comes next as we move out of the pandemic. With so many more people working from home, although I know that has been shifting back to the office uh, this year, but, you know, we had hotels that went out of business and office towers that were empty. Do hotels or office towers provide any possibility for affordable housing? Especially with the hotels, we have seen many examples across the country and even right here in Ohio of them being converted to housing. Um, sometimes uh, small studio apartments, um, especially for individuals who might be um, exiting incarceration or who may have experienced homelessness. We have seen those, if you will, retrofits occur. It's not uncommon for office buildings to become housing, and, and especially many of the urban downtown areas, you see a lot of those converted buildings, um, sometimes historical. Um, so there is a expertise out there. There is a precedent for making those changes. Um, and so we do anticipate that it will be part of the solution But we also know that many individuals want different types of communities. Oftentimes, office buildings or hotels are located in a more urban area or the more, you know, a downtown, even if you're talking about a small community. And individuals want oftentimes to live in more of a rural setting or a suburban area that's maybe closer to their their employment opportunities, their schools. And so we want to make sure that there is a diversified opportunity for people to live in their community of choice across the state. Talking with Amy Regal, Executive Director of the Coalition on Homelessness and Housing in Ohio. Uh, The homestead exemption for, for homeowners, seniors and disabled homeowners, it allows them to take $25,000 off the property value of their home that's taxable, but that's actually lower than it was a few years ago, I think. Uh, Is there any call for maybe uh, boosting the homestead exemption in Ohio? There is often look at the homestead exemption and to make sure it is properly helping individuals within communities. I'm not aware of any um, legislation at this time, um, but that is a common issue that is raised within the state, and that is looked at frequently. Especially, you know, home values are skyrocketing, so I'm I'm imagining that over the next few years, there's going to be some pretty significant boosts in property taxes. Yes, home prices are skyrocketing, and that is part of what is creating some of the pressure on the rental market. Individuals who would normally be buying their first time home um, and who maybe have been out of college for five to six years, they're settled in their jobs. They would be looking for a house out on the market, and what we find today is that many of them aren't able to purchase a home, not because they don't have the income, not because they don't have great credit, but because 
the houses are selling for cash, and they're oftentimes being sold to investors who are turning them into rental properties. And so that sometimes can create a imbalance within a community, whereas what you would consider the value of a home that you are going to live in, that you're hoping to live in for the next 10, 15 years, that you are going to make your own is different than what you might think is the value of a home where you are receiving rent on that house. And so that pushes up the value within communities and it will have an impact on property taxes. I do think that that's something that communities have always struggled with and that they will really have to um, dig in at that level um, at that taxation level and make sure that it doesn't start having a pinch on some of the most vulnerable in our community or those individuals who are the staples of our community who lived in those homes for years and years, decades and decades, that they don't suddenly um, become unable to stay in their home because of the tax rate. And it's an unfortunate and intriguing situation in Ohio because we still do have an unconstitutional situation with property taxes and school funding and all that. That is correct. And, um, you know, as that situation continues to occur, property taxes have a lot of meaning to a lot of interest groups. And we have to, you know, be able to balance those interests and really think about the individual living in the home. And that makes it really hard, which is just another reason that a different funding structure would benefit our communities for schools. Just a couple of minutes to go here with Amy Regal from Cohio, the Coalition on Homelessness and Housing in Ohio. Where do you suggest that people who are you know, like that example I gave you in northern Ohio where the rent went up 250 bucks, and you've talked about others who've gone through that. Where do they turn? Anybody that's looking for a way out of these problems, is there a, a resource to at least get information? That is a great question. And so there are some resources within every county that you can turn to. In some cases, the landlords are being very conscientious and they are they are working by the letter of the law. However, we are seeing some situations where the rent increases or the um, eviction notices or other orders being given by landlords are not to the letter of the law. And so if you do have questions, um, I encourage people to reach out to their local legal aid society or their volunteer lawyers program to Um, ask those questions and to make sure and just get a second opinion on whether or not what is happening is legal and perhaps you have more time to look for a new unit or perhaps additional notice has to be given or that um, based upon your lease that level of rent increase is not acceptable. So I do encourage people to reach out and, you know, just get a opinion on those rental increases. If you are in a unit and you are worried that you're not going to be able to pay rent or you are behind in rent, the local community action agencies in most counties, in some counties, it may be the Department of Jobs and Family Services, 
um, do have some rental assistance, and they may be able to help individuals um, to receive rent support. And then also at Ohio, we do help cities, counties, but also sometimes individuals to be able to find the right resources. And so by visiting our website at cohio.org, they can navigate to certain um, resources and find out information on there, or um, they also can call and find out more information from our housing information line, which is 888-485-7999. And once again, that's also, um, that's that line is there for people who are seeking advice on how to deal with specific issues related to their landlord-tenant relationship, the Fair Housing Act, or tenant organizing um, to be able to maybe bring tenants together to work with the landlord to try to stay housed in those units. And again, the website is cohio.org, and I'm assuming that folks can see your out-of-reach report at that website as well? Yes, cohio.org, cohio.org, and yes, the out-of-reach, and then also more information about our housing information line and our email um, inbox that also takes questions. Okay. Amy Regal, again, Executive Director of the Coalition on Homelessness and Housing in Ohio. Anything else you'd like to add? I thank you for your time. Thank you for helping us share this information about the Out of Reach Report. We think that this is really important to get out. And for those who may be experiencing the rising rents, for those who are feeling that pinch, we encourage you to reach out to your state representative, reach out to your state senator, or even your local maybe city or county commissioner, and tell them what an important issue this is to you and how the investment in more housing would benefit you and your community. Um, we need people to hear from the residents. They, they can listen to us advocates um, chatter away all the time, but they really are moved the most when they hear from their own constituents. So every voice matters, and we would appreciate those to reach out and express this need within the state. Amy, thanks so much for the information and your time today. Yes, thank you. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV. Here's Tracy Townsend from her Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. 
couldn't believe that we were arguing over this in the middle of the West Wing, talking about the politics of a tweet, being concerned with handing the media a win when we had just watched all of that violence unfold at the Capitol. That's Ohio native Sarah Matthews testifying in front of the January 6th committee in a special primetime hearing. We thank you for joining us today for Face the State. I'm Tracy Townsend. The hearing centered around the 187 minutes when President Trump did not step in to stop the rioters there on the Capitol. There was never before seen video from that day, including video of the former president recording a message in the Rose Garden. In the hearing, Matthews, who's a former deputy White House press secretary, detailed the frustration she says she felt when she saw that video. Ms. Matthews, what was your reaction to President Trump's message to the mob at 417? I was struck by the fact that he chose to begin the video by pushing the lie that there was a stolen election. And as the video went on, I felt a small sense of relief because he finally told these people to go home. But that was immediately followed up by him saying, we love you, you're very special. And that was disturbing to me because he didn't distinguish between those that peacefully attended his speech earlier that day and those that we watched cause violence at the Capitol. Instead, he told the people who we had just watched storm our nation's capital with the intent on overthrowing our democracy, violently attack police officers, and chant heinous things like hang Mike Pence. We love you. You're very special. And as a spokesperson for him, I knew that I would be asked to defend that. And to me, his refusal to act and call off the mob that day and his refusal to condemn the violence was indefensible. The committee could not fit everything into this hearing. There will be more hearings in September. In the August 2nd primary in our state, there are things you can do to make your voice heard. You can head to your county board of elections and vote in person or wait until August 2nd to vote on Election Day. We should note some voters could have different polling locations this time around. So really, you do want to check where yours is before you head out to vote. So far, this is how many Ohioans have voted. About 73,000 people requested absentee ballots, a little over 14,000 already cast an early vote in person, and nearly 30,000 Ohioans have cast and returned their ballots for an official count. Ohio lawmakers have to get to work on another set of maps for voters. The state Supreme Court struck down another set of congressional district maps. It ruled that Republicans broke gerrymandering rules. This means lawmakers have a month to redraw the map, but this doesn't change anything for the special election in August. Candidates were selected in the May primary using the districts that federal judges selected. Those will remain in place for the primary on August 2nd. Deadly shootings continue to rise in Ohio and right here in Columbus. City leaders are calling on gun violence. They're calling it a public health crisis. And Mayor Andrew Ginther is proposing two new laws. 10TV's Lacey Crisp explains. It's a great area. It's, it has a lot of energy. It has a lot of um, people who are just out and about. And there's just a really good community here, too. Victoria Menser has lived in the short north for more than two years and admits the recent violence has her startled. It is definitely concerning that there's 
the increase in crime. It is no secret we have seen an uptick in violence and other challenging activities throughout the short north recently, especially at night. To calm those fears, city leaders came together to explain what safety measures are in place and what additional plans they're working on. We're advancing two ordinances to Columbus City Council designed to address noise concerns and the dangerous late night activity that has recently occurred near mobile food vendors. Through funding from the city and partnerships, the Short North Alliance has created a safety interdiction team of officers who patrol the area during busy times. Since March, they say they have taken 14 guns off the streets. But do you think something more or different needs to happen given the fact we're sitting here uh, just 36 hours after a homicide has happened? And we have talked about several shootings in the Short North District in the last month or two. Yeah, it's it's so important for these efforts to continue. And um, uh, just because there's been successes in some efforts does not mean that we should stop. Metzer says she feels better knowing leaders are being proactive. When there is active response and active presence, which there appears to be, um, there is a relativity of, unfortunately, things happen in this world. And again, that was 10TV's Lacey Crisp reporting. So far, the mayor hasn't given a timeline for when he's going to ask council to consider the new ordinances. We will certainly follow this and let you know when that date is set. The family of Jalen Walker wants the U.S. Department of Justice to take over the investigation into his death. Walker died after getting shot by Akron police dozens of times last month. The family attorney claims the police union may have compromised the case over alleged discussions with BCI. We are going to drill down to figure out exactly how you became a witness. Who's talking to you? How did you know the timing of the witnesses and when they were going to be giving information? A spokesperson for BCI said, quote, no updates have or will be provided to the FOP president or any other parties by BCI while the investigation is ongoing. The family attorney mentioned he'd been in talks with U.S. Senator Sherrod Brown about this case. We asked him what he thought about passing the investigation to the Department of Justice. I've been in touch with the family's lawyer. I've talked to um, uh, Jalen's mother and sister. Uh, I was with my wife and I were with uh, the, the family of Tamir Rice, and uh, I always think the Department of Justice should look into these. And I, I'm saying that I said that to the family. I said that to the family's lawyer. I say that now that um, the Department of Justice needs to look and see what happened, and if there is if there is a uh, accountability that they need to that they need to bring to this, I, I certainly support that. Two similar bills in Washington are pushing to codify same-sex marriage. Up next, hear what lawmakers from Ohio think of these plans and why both of our senators agree on the issue. Hello, I'm Todd Markowitz, Vice President and General Manager of Radio Ohio, which owns 97.1 The Fan. We're an equal opportunity employer dedicated to providing broad outreach efforts regarding job vacancies within our company. We seek the help of local organizations in referring qualified applicants. Organizations that wish to receive our vacancy information should send their request to the attention of Human Resources, Radio Ohio, 770 Twin Rivers Drive, Columbus, 43215. If you'd like to view our current job openings, please visit our website at 971thefan.com and Thanks for listening. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV. Ohio's U.S. Senator Rob Portman is co-sponsoring a bill that would protect marriage equality for same-sex couples. 
Do you feel like that Republican views on this issue are changing? Well, yeah, I think that's obvious when you look at the House vote and you look at um, just a shifting uh, sentiment about this issue throughout the country. I, I think this is an issue that um, many Americans, regardless of their political affiliation, you know, feel has been resolved. We also talked with Senator Sherrod Brown to see where he stands on this legislation. I supported marriage equality for pretty much my whole career in Washington, and I, I will enthusiastically vote to make it the law of the land. Um, you know, we, we're a country that I always thought once someone secures rights, that they're always there. I mean, voting rights and w- women getting the vote and, and the African-Americans in Selma getting the vote and um, and marriage equality that gay people can marry. But we've seen efforts. The Supreme Court took away some of the civil rights that for generations African-Americans and, and whites fought for. Um, they're trying. They may take away marriage equality. Um, they took away Roe v. Wade. They took away women's rights. So I'm always I'm concerned with this radical Supreme Court that's so, so out of step with the American public and out of step with Ohio. And so we're going to fight like hell marriage equality as we are to restore a Abortion rights, and 70% of Ohioans agree with us. I mean, this is the, 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 the radicals on the Supreme Court are way out of step with the American public. The Senate's bill is similar to the House bill called the Respect for Marriage Act. It passed earlier with 47 Republicans on board. The bill would codify same-sex marriage into law. Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan voted against the bill. This bill is simply the latest installment of the Democrats' campaign to delegitimize and attempt to intimidate the United States Supreme Court. Congressman Mike Carey and Anthony Gonzalez were two Republicans from our state who did vote in favor of the Respect for Marriage Act. Right now, Ohio Congresswoman Joyce Beatty is working to get a woman on the $20 bill. Abolitionist Harriet Tubman would be the face on $20 bills. Right now, the seventh U.S. president, Andrew Jackson, who was a slave owner, is on that that bill. Congresswoman Beatty says work on the Tubman 20, as they're calling it, was stalled during the Trump administration. Her newest legislation prevents any new $20 bills from being printed without an image of Harriet Tubman. President Biden is laying out a new plan to tackle climate change. I will do everything in my power to clean our air and water, protect our people's health, to win the clean energy future. This, again, sounds like hyperbole. Our children and grandchildren are counting on us. Not a joke. Here are the three things the president says he's doing. He announced $2.3 billion toward FEMA, which helps families after natural disasters. Plus, he's making it easier for some people to get help when it comes to paying their electric bills. The president also plans to expand wind and power, wind power opportunities in the Gulf of Mexico. So we will watch how that plays out. Health leaders in Ohio are closely watching the spread of two viruses, COVID-19 and monkeypox. Up next, what Columbus Public health plans to do to increase testing and vaccination. Back to school means major milestones from kindergarten to middle school and, of course, high school. Up next, I'm talking one-on-one with the superintendent of Ohio's largest school district about safety and security. Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV. 
Right now, two viruses are spreading in our state. We're talking about monkeypox and COVID-19. And while cases of monkeypox are low, so is access to vaccines. We asked Columbus Public Health about their plan from testing to vaccination. 10TV's Lindsay Mills is breaking it all down for us and explaining how a familiar face is teaming up with a famous name to get information out there fast. We need to get the facts out there. Nina West going live on Instagram Wednesday with Ohio Health Infectious Disease Specialist Dr. Joe Castaldo. An in-depth Q&A for the facts about monkeypox. I'm always a big believer of knowledge being power. Um, There's a lot of fear and anxiety about monkeypox. This, as the former FDA commissioner warns, it may be too late to get control of the outbreak across the U.S. We made a lot of the same mistakes that we made with COVID with this. Having a very narrow case definition, not having enough testing early enough, not deploying vaccine in aggressive fashion. Uh, fashion. What are your thoughts on that? Has that window closed? There are many opportunities in areas we need to improve. He says like testing capacity and education. There's a lot of misinformation about monkeypox. Um, there's an opportunity to really engage people about how monkeypox presents, what it looks like, um, how monkeypox is spread. In Ohio on June 13th, the first case was reported. Testing is limited. Here's how it works. For somebody to get tested for monkeypox, you have to have skin, mouth, or genital lesions. If the lesions aren't there, you can't test somebody. Testing involves a swab, uh, same type of swab that we use for COVID-19. You have to swab the base of a lesion, get some cells, and then you have to send it to a lab for, guess what, PCR testing. There is one vaccine and access is limited across the country. Currently in the state of Ohio, no no physician, no pharmacist or nurse can write a prescription for somebody to receive a monkeypox vaccine. The supply is not there. Lindsay Mills, 10 TV News. And turning to COVID-19 and a new vaccine approved in the U.S., Novavax will soon be available here. As a so-called protein vaccine, infectious disease experts say it's more of a traditional vaccine. It's different from the Pfizer and Moderna versions that are mRNA vaccines. Essentially, it helps your body attack the virus in a different way. And unlike the other COVID vaccines, this one will not be used as a booster, at least for now. It's a new option for Ohioans who have not yet had any COVID vaccinations yet. For whatever reason, uh, we do have people who are fearful or have concerns about mRNA vaccines, and there are people who have not yet been vaccinated. And I do think there may be an opportunity to uh, respectfully engage those individuals uh, to talk to them about the Novavax vaccine. Two doses will be given three weeks apart. The United States purchased more than three million doses, which could be available in the next few weeks. And now with the accessibility of at-home rapid tests, many positive cases are not being reported to the Ohio Department of Health. What should we be looking at in terms of knowing how severe COVID is in our community? Lindsay Lindsay Mills is back now with some answers from the experts. Across the country, the highly contagious BA5 subvariant now accounts for 78% of all COVID infections in the United States. The CDC says we're averaging more than 120,000 cases a day, but the actual number is expected to be much higher. Are those case numbers still an accurate representation of, of COVID in our community? 
you know, I think one of the things that has changed is that we definitely have these home tests that are available and not everybody is reporting the results of their home tests, whether it's positive or negative. Dr. Maddie Sabani, an infectious disease specialist at OSU Wexner Medical Center, says even if the weekly case counts don't account for every single positive case, it's still a useful tool to monitor the spread of the virus and any trends. That's why it's going to be a continued task of seeing what the case numbers are, see if there's any mutation that has occurred, making sure that the the antibodies that we can give patients um, still work, and also making sure that the vaccines still work. It's information health leaders and families can monitor alike to determine how safe it is to do certain activities based on your risk for severe illness. I worry about patients who are pregnant. I worry about our patients who have cancers who have transplants. Dr. Sabani says the factors to watch for are hospitalizations and transmission levels. So transmission essentially accounts for positive tests. How many positive tests are there based on a population in that area? This as wastewater samples continue to be collected and tested for the virus. Definitely another tool that we can use to look at and see how much COVID is in there in the community. You can see the data on the CDC's wastewater metric map. In Columbus, Lindsay Mills, 10 TV News. And to take a closer look at the case numbers and the county by county spread, go to 10tv.com slash coronavirus. 10TV has an eye on education and a view this morning from the leader of the state's largest school district. I talk with Columbus City School Superintendent Talisa Dixon about safety and security, transportation, and how parents can prepare their children to be ready to learn on day one. Classy in session July 27th for students at Woodcrest Elementary. Those babies go back early, the year-round school. And Columbus City School Superintendent and CEO Talisa Dixon is clearly here for it. That year-round model has really worked well. The families love it, the students love it. The superintendent of the state's largest school district sat down with me to share plans geared toward building on that energy and excitement for the new school year, including robotics for all CCS fifth graders and a new math curriculum for pre-K students through 12th graders and their families. As a parent, you said math, and I all of a sudden heard the Charlie Brown teacher. Am I, I going to be able to help my, ch- my child? <laughs> well, you know, I think at some point, uh, all of us have been really afraid of math, yes. but I think of math, we have to stay more as building blocks. It's those hands-on projects, you know, even if it's counting things at home and adding things and um, with your family. So you know, there's so many different activities that you can make math fun that students don't realize they're learning something that's very difficult. Dixon and her team are tackling tough assignments, too, including transportation. New this year, high school students must opt in to use Columbus City Schools transportation, a move aimed at improving efficiency. They may have been utilizing the school bus, right? So our buses were stopping at places that kids were already at school, may have been you know, a big road with a friend or a family member. So we really want to get to efficiency so we can get all of our students to school on time. That's an on-time arrival for nearly 40,000 students. The district is hiring drivers and will pay for your training and licensing. We have about 36 people we're bringing on pretty soon. By August 2nd, I think they're going to be boarded. The toughest work may be around school safety and security. Superintendent Dixon told me there can be no compromises in creating and maintaining a safe environment for learning. 
which means no weapons at school. We are working on um, heavy metal detectors in our buildings. Now we have random checks where we are wanting um, our um, students' bags when they come in, and we're going to continue to do that at our athletic events. Parents and guardians have to get in on this work, too. Dixon urges parents to check student backpacks and book bags daily. Just do a once over, just kind of check to make sure that it's nothing in there, um, you know, anything that even looks suspicious is there. And don't wait until the first day to be ready to learn. Dixon is encouraging all students in every grade to have fun, relax, but also get back into a routine. Put down your devices and pick up a book now. So as we get closer to the beginning of the school year, we may want to start them going to bed a little earlier um, and getting back into those routines that are so important. But reading every day, um, this life changing. Columbus City Schools will have a back-to-school fair on Saturday, August 20th at Fort Hayes High School. It's sort of a one-stop shop to help families get ready for school and, of course, the first day, August 24th. We thank you so much for joining us here today on Face the State, and we wish you a great week. That's again Tracy Townsend, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, from their Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. Here's Tracy to tell you what's on this morning at 1130. Good morning. I'm Tracy Townsend coming up on Face the State. Primary Election Day, the one we've been waiting for, is Tuesday. We have critical reminders to ensure your vote is counted. The CHIPS Act is signed, sealed, but what does it deliver to Ohio? We're talking Intel business with a top state lawmaker. You asked, and we got some answers about ride safety and gun safety at the Ohio State Fair. We'll see you at 1130 for Face the State. Vision loss is not something that you feel until it happens. Most people lose their vision from diseases like macular degeneration and glaucoma. Not at birth. Three million Americans have glaucoma, and half don't even know it. Eleven million people in the United States have macular degeneration. So many eye disorders can be treated if caught early. Make a plan today to get your eyes checked. Visit brightfocus.org to learn more. Science is not an opinion. People come before pipelines. It's not too late to act on climate. No one is above the law. At Earth Justice, we hold these beliefs to be self-evident. As a national legal nonprofit fighting for your right to a healthy environment, we are 150-plus lawyers representing clients free of charge because now, more than ever, the Earth needs a good lawyer. No one fights more cases on the environment than Earth Justice. And we win because these are fights we cannot lose. We win for scientists so they can serve at the EPA. We win at the Supreme Court because clean water is for everyone. We win against fossil fuel plants so communities can breathe freely. If you believe what we believe, then help us fight the good fight and help us keep winning by going to earthjustice.org today. That's earthjustice.org. Ladies and gentlemen, we have arrived in Philadelphia. Local time is 3.05 p.m. and the temperature is 67 degrees. At this time, you are now free to use your cellular devices. You know that feeling when you get to turn your phone on after the plane lands? You can have that feeling every time you drive. Make sure your cell phone is stowed away whenever you are behind the wheel. Visit StopTextStopRex.org. A message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. 
This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and joining me on the phone is Pam Fisher. She's Senior Director of External Engagement for the Governor's Highway Safety Association. How are you? I'm great, Dave. Thanks for talking to us. What is the Governor's Highway Safety Association? Well, we are a national organization based in Washington, D.C. We represent the 57 state and territorial highway safety offices, which include the uh, highway safety office in the great state of Ohio. And we work to advance highway safety issues uh, and make sure that people understand that the decisions we make out there on the road every day do have an effect on everyone's safety. And you're putting a focus on distracted driving. Tell us about it. Well, it's a very important time. We're really trying to call attention to a persistent but very preventable problem on our road, which is people being distracted while they're behind the wheel. Uh, we lose over 3,000 people a year to, uh, to this problem, and another 400,000 are injured every year. But we know those numbers are much, much, much higher. So we really need to get folks to think about this, um, to really think about what are they doing, are they Likely, you know, do they tend to pick up their phone? Are they looking at their phone? And when it pings at them, you know, we need to recognize that this is a problem that can be prevented. So this gives us a chance to really ratchet it up, if you will, for public awareness and get people to think about, you know, changing their behavior. You know, when it comes to distracted driving, it's interesting because I think we've probably all eaten while we've driven, which is not a good thing. But the level of distraction of eating compared to talking to somebody on the phone, it, it, it's just amazing how much being on a phone completely takes your senses away from driving. Yeah, you're right, Dave. I mean, people think about it with the, the idea of holding the phone, right, the, the manual manipulation. But there's also that cognitive piece where we're focused on processing the information that's coming into our ear, what that other person is saying to us. When we do that, we really are taking our mind off the process of driving. Driving is a cognitive task. Talking on your cell phone is a cognitive task. And you can't really do the, the two things at the same time. One of them is going to suffer. And so we have to understand that, you know, we need to focus 100% on the activity of driving so that our mind, our hands are on the wheel, right, our mind's focused on the road and can process what we're seeing out there so that we can take those actions that are necessary because things happen really fast on the road and we have to be able to act quickly to prevent something bad from happening. And just a, a conversation with somebody in the car can also distract you, but at least sometimes that's a second set of eyes that could be on the road. But also I think why... There are laws in some states, at least, against having a bunch of kids uh, in the car when there's a young person driving. Yeah, um, for, especially for novice drivers, for teen drivers. I've done tons of work in this area, and we know that when you put a teen driver behind the wheel and you have their friends in the car, it definitely increases the potential for distraction and risky driving behaviors overall. So we really need to limit the number of teens that are in that vehicle. Uh, as a parent, as I've raised, a young man who's now driving and doing very well, but, you know, we know that they are at risk because they are inexperienced, they're immature. So the more we can lessen the likelihood of their, of their passengers being in the car, the better it's going to be for them. They're you know, going to lower that risk level, and, and the chances of them not having an issue happen really is much better. So from a, a law or, or even a technical point of view, what direction are safety advocates going to try to reduce distracted driving? Yeah, thanks for asking that. I mean, what we know is that we'd like to see stronger laws in states. Laws do have an impact 
on behaviors. People recognize it's against the law, and many, many people want to comply with the law. So we want to see stronger laws. We want to see bans on handheld cell phones and texting. Most states have a primary texting ban in place, but we have just about 13 or so states that have a handheld ban, and we want to see those numbers go up because it can help with enforcement. It's very, very difficult to enforce texting-only bans because you have to see, the officer has to see the person holding the phone, and oftentimes they can't see that. It's, it's difficult. Um, and we also need to call attention to the fact that that use of that cell phone, that handheld phone, really is tremendously distracting. So if we put it into law, we're sending a very clear message to that driver, this is not safe. We don't want you to do this. You're putting yourself and others on the road at risk. Are there any technical advances, uh, things in cars that are helping to make people better drivers under these circumstances? Absolutely. I know manufacturers are really focused on making, uh, limiting the distraction as much as possible in the vehicle, making it easy for folks to do what they need to do to operate that vehicle safely. So there is technology in cars that really are can help with that. And I do believe technology can help us. It's not just all about, you know, it's a bad thing. There are positives to technology. The other thing I want to stress is that we also have other features in the vehicle. Um, automatic emergency braking, lane keeping assist. Those are things in the vehicle that are in many new cars. But if, you know, you do engage in a distracting behavior, there is some, you know, there's kind of a fall safe, if you will, in the vehicle that can help you. But the most, you know, the best thing you can do, this best safety feature, I always say in a vehicle, is a driver, a driver who is completely engaged in the activity of operating that vehicle. That's the best safety feature in your car. Talking with Pam Fisher, Senior Director of External Engagement for the Governor's Highway Safety Association. Anything else you'd like to add? Well, I think the one thing that I I, I really want to point out right now is that we need a cultural shift in this country when it comes to safety. And I'm going to point particularly to this issue of distraction. There seems to be this mindset, and it's been researched by a number of organizations, that people think, well, you know, I, I know that using my cell phone while driving is dangerous. Um, I don't like when other people do it, but I'm okay. I can do it. I'm safe. It's the other person I'm worried about. And what we want folks to understand is, you know, that's not an acceptable response. And that, quite frankly, you may have been able to do it this trip, but something bad could happen in the next trip. And that's often the case. When I mentioned before about, you know, over 3,000 people die in distracted driving crashes annually, people didn't set out that day to use their phone and, and kill someone. It's, these are crashes. These happen, but it's preventable. And so we need folks to understand that the behavior isn't safe. You may think you can do it, but you really can't. And so we need to change this culture. We need to say, I know it's unacceptable. I'm not going to do it. And I'm going to call out my friends and my family members if they do it as well, because I want them to be safe. If I'm riding with them, I certainly you know, want to know that they're going to be 100% attentive so that my safety is, you know, not jeopardized. So we do have to change the culture in this country, and each of us has to step up and say, I need to change because I need to make sure that my safety isn't at risk and the decisions I make don't impact others. Do you have information online you recommend? I would encourage folks um, in Ohio to, to, you know, the easiest thing to do is always Google, I always say, but look for your Ohio Highway Safety Office. 
within your Department of Public Safety. They have lots of information about this issue. You can also go to the GHSA website. It's just ghsa.org. We have a section focused specifically on distracted driving. Talks about you know things you can do to protect yourself. Uh, but I would say you know definitely focus on um, you know that behavior. You get in the car. The first thing you should do: put your phone out of reach. Put it somewhere where you can't you know interact with it. Um, and remember that it will take messages for you. And when you get to your destination, you can check it and take it from there. All right, Pam Fisher with the Governor's Highway Safety Association. Thanks for your time today. Sure appreciate it. Thank you, Dave. And I say to you and all your listeners, be safe out there. This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. Heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM. That's 1460 ESPN Columbus. And Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS FM. Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan. Join us again next Sunday for Columbus Perspective.